Okay. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. You know, on Chef AJ Live, more often than not, a guest is recommended by a previous guest. In this case, today's guest was recommended by a future guest, and I'm so lucky to have him. His name is Dr. Def Jeffrey Rediger, and we're going to be talking about his book, Cured. I only got it on Audible. That's why I can't show you the cover. It's an amazing book about spontaneous healing, spontaneous remission and recovery. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, especially if you remember Sunday show when we had a, a cancer patient who is not only a survivor, by, but a thriver. Please welcome him to the show. It's so nice to meet you. Any friend of Emily is a friend of mine. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure well, to meet you. Well, thank you. You know, I, you know, I would, I would never say to a guest, I really liked your book if, if I didn't, but I really did like your book because I listened to it right after listening to a book also about spontaneous recovery by Dr. Kelly Turner called Radical Hope. So I was already in the mindset that this is possible. And, you know, I've had guests on the show and we'll have guests on the show that have healed from incurable diseases. And I'm just curious why science is not as interested as you and I in this topic. That's a really good question. Um, it's a, a multi-layered question and answer. Um, there are so many brilliant things about traditional medicine, and there's so many things that are broken about traditional medicine. So um, I believe that med school is a very powerful socialization process. And by the time a person uh, graduates from med school, you're socialized into this very powerful method um, that in some ways is brilliant for, for surgery, for fixing broken bones and that sort of thing, but it's very broken in terms of understanding what healing is. And I can tell you a funny story about, about healing. Um, I, it took me years to, to understand that as a doctor, I was trained to make a diagnosis and start a medication, but we don't even typically study how people heal, much less think about it for our patients. And I'm uh, sorry to say that that's the case. That is slowly starting to change, but only very slowly. And we need to help open a new era in medicine where we actually study how people feel. Jill Bolte-Taylor is a friend of mine uh, and some of your uh, readers and listeners may have heard of her. She um, gave the first TED talk that went viral and it's been viewed millions of times. Um, when she and I met, she said, I've been waiting for you for 22 years. She said in 22 years, no doctor has ever been interested in how I had a full recovery from my stroke. And so Jill Bolte-Taylor was uh, a neuroscience uh, postdoc fellow here at McLean at Harvard where I work. Uh, and um, that was in the 90s before I was here. Uh, but she was 37 years old. She had a big stroke that took out most of her left brain. And then she had a full recovery from her stroke. She wrote a best-selling book about it called uh, Stroke of Insight. And then again, gave the first TED talk that went viral. She was named by Time Magazine as one of the most important people of 2008. Uh, Oprah was doing a movie on Jill's life until Jill decided to do something else. And so she's a really, really famous person. She's a neuroscientist who had a stroke and a full recovery, and yet doctors have never been interested. And that's consistent with all of the people I've been studying since 2003. Of all the people I've studied, well over 100 people going very deep into their lives, and not a single person has ever had a doctor get interested in how they got better after being told they were going to die from their illness. 
So it's shocking how um, much this is the case. Um, the good doctors say, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because it's working, but they're still not curious, which is very interesting, right? I mean, you'd think if someone's getting better after being told they're going to die, that we'd be curious in how they're getting better. And it turns out there's huge patterns to all of this in terms of the people who get better are following patterns that other people follow. But again, uh, we need to become much more curious about how these people are getting better. Many of these people that have experienced these spontaneous healings been medical doctors? Because I would imagine if it happened to one of them, they would be then interested. Yeah, I, I tell the story in Cured about a Dr. Uh, Rosenberg who did get, who saw spontaneous remission, not in his life, but in a patient's life. And it shocked him so much that he, and he actually did become curious and then he became the father of immunotherapy, which um, most of what we do with cancer treatment historically has been that we use immune suppressants to shut down the immune system to try to beat cancer. And when he saw this person with stomach cancer get better uh, from their cancer and knew that was statistically impossible, uh, he began doing research at the National Institutes of Health about how to boost the immune system. And that has created the now exploding area of immunotherapies, uh, which was founded upon a case of spontaneous remission. So I'm, at least one other doctor got curious, which is a good thing. And it's leading to a very different way of understanding how to help people heal. Absolutely. So for our viewers, maybe that aren't familiar with this topic or have read the book, how do you define spontaneous recovery or spontaneous remission? Spontaneous remission is uh, when an illness uh, disappears uh, in the context of statistics that according to our understanding of the illness should not have gone away uh, based upon the treatments that uh, were available. And so my criteria and the research that I did was very strict. Uh, there was three criteria that I followed. Number one, the person had to have a genuinely incurable illness, according to all of our statistics. Number two, they had to have medically indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. And number three, uh, no other good explanation for how they got better. In other words, there could not be an experimental medication involved or something like that to explain their recovery. That allowed me to begin uh, separating out the, the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, to really begin figuring out how these people got better um, when they should not have been able to do so, according to our modern or typical understanding. Well, one of the things you said in the book is there's nothing spontaneous about spontaneous remission. Yeah, well, and so you're taught, we are taught in med school that spontaneous remission is a fluke with no medical or scientific value. And uh, the word spontaneous in this use means without cause. Can you imagine a less scientific perspective than to just assume that a, person, a person's healing has no cause? That's, everything has a cause. And so the word spontaneous remission shows how unscientific our approach to understanding illness has been over the years. Everything has a cause. It turns out there are profound patterns to the people who get better at what they're doing. And so we uh, should be investigating and making known these patterns so that people can use them in their own lives. 
Yeah. And you talk about those in your book. You know, one of the stories, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the gentleman's name that intrigued me. I, I, he, he was the one that signed out of the hospital. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I have had many patients sign up. It, it was the guy who was just like, he didn't, he didn't seem to fit the mold. He didn't seem to have a lot of support. He still got well. I, I'm sorry. I can't remember his name. If you say it, I'll remember him. It was Do you remember him. what kind of illness he had? It was pretty serious. Oh, Multiple myeloma. What is it? Uh, Steve, Stephen Dunphy. That's it. Dunphy. Yes. Stephen Dunphy. Yes. Right. Yeah. An incredible story. Do uh, you have a question or a part of that story? Well, no, it's just that story because he, he even didn't fit, seem to fit the mold with some of the other stories. It's almost like, and that's why I wonder, you know, the people that experience these spontaneous recoveries, like, do they, I mean, how, how much skin do they have in the game? In other words, like, do they set out saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be one of these success stories, or is it, do they just luck out doing these? either patterns or behaviors that are in common of the people that have had success? Yeah, um, well, actually, more paradoxically than one would expect, many people expect to die. Um, you're going to have on your show soon, Emily, right? Emily Bowler. And Emily Bowler is very characteristic of the people I've been studying for years. She was diagnosed with um, metastatic lung cancer, and she, like many people, uh, prepared to die and expected to die because the statistics were on the side of, of uh, that being uh, her prognosis. So she expected to die. Um, I knew, and uh, you know what? I can show some pictures. If you want me to pull up on yeah, your I would screen, love and that. I can... Uh, this is, I can go ahead and, and I did not write about Emily's story in Cured um, in part because um, her, she was just diagnosed with lung cancer this past year. Uh, I've been following her story for many years. So I was already following her and watching her heal from many illnesses before she was diagnosed with lung cancer this past year. Um, so again, uh, I've watched her, like um, these people who follow these patterns, uh, she was healing from heart disease and a number of illnesses. Let's see how I can share my screen here. Yeah, if you have everything pulled up on your desktop and then click share screen, because I've enabled this screen share for There you. we go. Oh, perfect. Can you see that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Okay. All right, let's see if this allows you to see it. Hmm. You able to see yeah, it? Now, now it went black, weird. Okay, let's see if I need to, can you see it now? Yes. Okay, so let's just do it this way because that might be the best we can do. Uh, so Emily is um, an artist by training. And in 2008, she decided she wanted to be an artist, not just with her just not just on paper, but with her life and her body. And Emily had been through a lot by that point. Um, she had experienced trauma growing up. Uh, she and I both grew up in a, a small, very conservative fundamentalist church uh, in rural Indiana. We both come from farms in Indiana, uh, probably were exposed to a lot of pesticides when we were young. Uh, and that doesn't mean it's a cause of her cancer, but it uh, certainly, there's some correlations in that kind of research. She had uh, also uh, been through the suicide of a son, which is a, a terrible trauma for any mother. 
Um, and by the time 2008 rolled around, she was suffering not just from anxiety and depression, but also from heart disease, from elevated blood sugar. Her doctor was trying to decide whether she had uh, transitioned to diabetes or just uh, was uh, almost there with glucose tolerance, glucose intolerance. Uh, she had hypertension. She had high cholesterol. She was on medications for her heart disease, for her cholesterol, for her blood pressure, for anxiety and depression, um, and was really struggling. Uh, around that time, she uh, was in Italy on a trip, and as uh, consistent with her uh, artist's uh, history of being an artist, she was uh, visiting the statue of David uh, by the sculptor Michelangelo. And she was very offended by uh, the fact that somebody uh, several centuries ago had defaced that statue in some way. And she thought, why would somebody uh, deface such a beautiful piece of art? And was offended by that. But then she was hit with this striking realization. She, in her words, realized that uh, she was a temple of God and that she had been defacing her own mind and body her entire life. Um, defacing her body with the kind of foods she'd been putting in, uh, toxic foods into her body, and toxic thoughts um, with the poor uh, ways she'd been considering her own value. She was struck by the uh, depth of the toxic foods and thoughts she'd been putting into her body and decided to make some changes. Around that time, she read a book by Joel Furman called Eat to Live and found that book to be revelatory. Uh, she had been in a struggle her entire life around food. Her mother had made food a control issue and was always trying to get um, Emily to lose weight. Emily had been on yo-yo diets her entire life. She'd always been counting calories, um, looking at food portions and all that, and all that had failed. But when she read the book Eat to Live, she realized, oh, I don't need to focus on calories and on restricting food. I don't need to focus on portions of different foods from food groups. I just need to give my body the most nutritional food that I can. I need to make sure that the foods that I put in my body are nutritionally dense and get rid of anything that is uh, empty calories or um, poor nutrition. And that was a revelation for her because that allowed her to focus on the nutrition she was giving herself instead of the food she was restricting herself from. And it just changed the whole psychology of this. Um, she didn't have to worry about counting calories or those sorts of things. And that really helped her in her quest to stop criticizing herself, to quit beating herself up, to begin focusing on what was right about her instead of what was wrong and missing. So she decided um, to, to um, document her journey. The picture that you see on the slide in the middle is her in July of 2008. And the picture on the right is her in July of 2009. That's one year later. And one year later, she had lost 100 pounds. She was uh, healthier and much happier. She was off of all medications by that point, no longer suffering from high blood pressure, from high cholesterol, from... Um, she would no longer had a high blood sugar. She no longer needed medications for anxiety or depression. And this was not just a fad for her. This shift of thinking, this shift in her experience of herself and what was right about her 
um, has continued to unfold and now she has written a book about her recovery. She is now as a motivational speaker. Um, she does podcasts like you are going to experience soon, it sounds like, when she visits you. And so this has continued to be just such a, a wonderful journey into a new life and a, a truer experience of herself and her value that's been very exciting to watch. And then, so she healed all these diseases. And then this last year was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. And she applied basically very similar uh, kinds of strategies, except she added uh, a new piece to it that I think was critical to understand. I knew the spiritual counselor, the PhD marriage and family therapist that she'd been seeing for decades, but I also knew he was not trauma-informed. And we spoke about the importance of switching to uh, see a therapist who, who uh, was genuinely trauma-informed and not just a therapist who thought he was trauma-informed. <laughs> so many therapists think they're trauma-informed and they're not. She did, and I, and I think, I think frankly, uh, her former therapist uh, was well-intentioned but not trauma-informed and participated in a lot of spiritual bypassing. He, re, he thought faith was important, but he saw faith and spirituality as a way to avoid dealing with trauma he encouraged her to stay in her marriage that was abusive instead of confronting and setting boundaries with her husband, for example. And I think that was a big problem. So she did get a new therapist, a trauma-informed therapist, and she spent months just sobbing as she began to deal with traumas from her childhood and traumas from her marriage. And she focused on sleep. She also focused on the nutritional plan that was a good fit for her uh, that is described in Chris's uh, Works book, uh, Crispy Cancer. And she uh, believes that the combination of trauma healing, of continuing to heal her uh, toxic thoughts about her own value, uh, and then this nutritional work and uh, focusing on sleep and making sure that she had a lot of sleep at night. She made sure that she was turning down evening social events so that she could start to wind down by eight o'clock, be in bed by 9 p.m. and get good restorative sleep every night. Um, those were the uh, main changes that she introduced into her life um, on top of already living a very healthy life. And lo well and behold, uh, several months ago, uh, her CT of the chest came back negative for cancer. So this is a pattern I've seen over and over again. I cannot stress the importance of doing uh, trauma healing. Uh, I do believe that as Bessel van der Kolk says, the body does keep the score. Uh, the body tells the story for those of us who have ears to listen. And if we don't know how to say no, our bodies eventually say no for us. And that's a lot of what happens with, with illness. Um, I believe. I believe our clinics and our hospitals around the country are full of people who don't know their value, are constantly beating themselves up internally, don't know how to say no and stop taking care of everyone else around them instead of also paying attention to their own needs for authentic well-being. So we can go into the story more deeply, but this is a pattern I've seen over and over and over in my 20 years of research. I love what, I just wrote down what you said. If, if we don't know how to say no, our bodies say no for us. And that's, it seems when a disease is often created, isn't it? It sure is. Gabor Mate uh, is a physician 
in uh, Vancouver who writes beautifully about this. He, he has a book called um, When Your Body Says No. Uh, his new book called Myth of Normal also addresses these issues. And I think he's a very articulate spokesperson for understanding uh, the deeper needs of the soul for unconditional love and for knowing how to set boundaries so that we pay attention uh, to our own authentic needs and not just running around taking care of the perceived expectations or needs of others. You know, Emily will be on the show on October 30th. It's a Monday. She was scheduled for July, but there was a wedding or something in the family and she had to postpone it. And Dr. Furman was on yesterday, coincidentally. Oh, he was. Yeah. It's just so funny that it's all, it's all working together. You know, it's interesting because, um, I have people of different, you know, people have different opinions on Chef AJ Live. And there are many doctors, psychiatrists, even medical doctors that come on this show and completely do not believe that trauma plays any role in in people's health, you know, they, they it, it, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to argue with people, but it's interesting that, that uh, there, there are people in the medical community that, that discount it. I'm sure you know that though. Oh, it's my mission is to help create a more trauma informed medicine and more trauma informed psychiatry and a more trauma informed spirituality, because these are massive issues that uh, well-trained doctors well-trained um, psychologists and well-trained ministers or priests do not receive, and it's a massive issue. Yeah. Honeybee is mentioning that when the body uh, says no is a great book. And the one that you mentioned, The Body Keeps the Score, I, I actually have listened to that twice. It was a very interesting book. And Liz, who's watching live, asks if you can please elaborate on what you mean by a trauma-informed therapist and how does one find one? Is there an actual directory? Well, I think that's that's a really important question. I believe that in the context of trauma recovery, people need different things at different points in that journey. So sometimes, uh, and, and it often takes years for a person to find that out because we don't do a good job of helping people find what they needed different points in their journey. So the first thing to be aware of is that if a therapist says they're trauma-informed, that does not mean that they are. So there's that piece of it. Um, someone who has actually had official formal training in trauma recovery is important. Um, I, I think uh, there are times in a person's recovery journey where they need a somatic therapy, something that's that's really about getting the trauma out of the body. Uh, that involves touch sometimes. Uh, that's so the somatic therapies um, are worth looking at, and a person needs to decide: is this the right time for a somatic therapy? Uh, another good trauma therapy that is right for some people at, in certain points in their recovery journey is internal family systems therapy. Uh, the founder there is uh, Dick Schwartz, and he has a, an understanding of trauma recovery that is very powerful for people who are at that point in their recovery journey um, that helps people engage in a way that is sensitive to both the psychological and the spiritual dimensions of their being. It's a very spiritual therapy uh, and the most profound integration of spirituality and psychology that I've seen as a psychiatrist. Uh, his, his approach is 
expanding rapidly around the world right now because it is helping so many people recover from trauma. Um, Peter Levine's work is a good somatic uh, approach, and he there are somatic therapists that have been trained in Peter Levine's work. There are many therapists in the IFS directory that have been trained in Dick Schwartz's approach. Um, there are uh, many people who have been finding paths to recovery based upon Judy Herman's work in uh, trauma. Uh, she's out here at Harvard, where I'm at. Um, let's see what other kinds of approaches might be important for people um, to investigate. And each of these approaches I'm mentioning do have uh, trauma therapists associated who have been trained in these methods. Um, do you but, do this? Do you do this kind of work, and do you still see patients? What, what do you do exactly at Harvard? I am medical director at a branch of McLean, uh, a set of inpatient and outpatient programs. I do do some clinical work, uh, but a lot of it is um, also involved with administration and teaching. Um, and the clinical work I do do is inpatient. Um, if you don't have any more slides, if you want, you could stop share so then we could see you bigger. Oh, yeah, sure. You bet. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was listening to your TED talk and you said that at one point in your life, you were both a skeptic, you were a skeptic of both religious religion and science. And now you seem to be a believer in both. Yes. Yeah, I, I do believe um, that there is value in both um, spirituality and science and there are important things to be aware of in terms of their limitations. Yeah, that's, that's just so interesting. You know, one of the things I found fascinating in your book is because because I've had Dean Ornish, Dr. Dean Ornish on the show, and he's talking mm -hmm. about telomeres. You talk a lot about these in your book and how that stress can affect them. Yes, that's right. Stress wears off the ends of the telomeres and shortens uh, the lifespan of our health and well-being for sure and lifespan. That's incredible how they studied that. You talk a little bit about forgiveness and forgiveness meditations in your book. What role does forgiveness play in healing for some people at least? Well, I, I think the reality is that we are both biological beings and spiritual beings. And I think the failure of much of the research in medicine and in science is that we look at material or tangible things like what foods we put in our bodies, but we don't take into account the deeper spiritual needs and longings of the person. I think ultimately there is something in us that needs to experience unconditional love that ultimately has to come from within us. Um, but, um, and so as biological beings, food is important, but most of our nutrition studies don't pay, take into account these deeper uh, needs and longings because food is also love. Food is a way that we, um, experience love, if there are certain uh, emotional deficits in our lives, if there's not emotion, enough emotional or spiritual nutrition, we are sometimes vulnerable to using food as a way to, to give ourselves love. And so uh, it's it, I've seen and documented many times people can have the healthiest diet in the world and be some of the sickest people on the planet because they're emotionally or spiritually starved. And so it's just really important that we not only pay attention to our needs for physical nutrition, we also need to pay attention to the deeper 
longing to experience an unconditional level of positive regard for ourselves and others. And that can have a salutary healing effect on both mind and body. You have a figurine on your filing cabinet. It's just, I'm just curious who that is. No, oh, that's Freud. It's, I was given, <laughs> I was given a, a figurine of Freud's. Because I, I keep noticing it. I'm like, who is this guy on his file? Yeah, right. <laughs> I thought maybe G.I. Joe. That's hilarious, a Freud right. figurine. <laughs> right. That is hilarious. Are you familiar with the work of the Blue Zones? I am very familiar. Yeah, I just right. came from there. Right. And so, so like they talk about the things that all the Blue Zones people who successfully became centenarians had in common. And in your research, are there certain traits that people that have undergone spontaneous remission have in common? Like, is there a short list of what, what we all maybe can think about doing now? If it, And actually, the things that they've done are not just things for people that have been diagnosed with cancer. They're things that we can do just to be healthier, I think. Yeah. So your question is, are the things that people in the blue zones are doing that are relevant to us? Is, is well, that- no, what I mean is like, is there like a short list? Like in the blue zones, they talk about, you know, close connections. They ate legumes. Yes. You know, I mean, you know, there, there could be like almost a list of what they did. They ate mostly whole unprocessed food. Mm-hmm. Is there a, like a, a, a like a like a Cliff Notes version. I mean, I hope everyone will buy the book and read it. I've been posting the link, but are there things that people should be aware of, of what these successful survivors had in common? And not everybody did everything, obviously, but they, there were themes, you know? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think it's important to understand that the blue zones come from, are all in different parts of the world. And so there is no one size fits all when it comes to diet. Some blue zones, people um, eat, certain kinds of vegetables that are not available in other blue zones or the certain kinds of fish. Uh, But what's true is that um, for the most part, people in the blue zones do eat a a lot of plants. They eat some fish, but I think there's some other things that are worth understanding is they often spend a long time in the evening sharing love around a table with each other. I just came back from the Greek islands uh, where one of the blue zones exists. And I can tell you there's, it's more than just the Mediterranean diet that's getting people better, I believe. It's also the fact that you spend your evenings sitting in a beautiful location, having plants and fish and wine with people you love. And you spend four hours sitting around just talking and laughing and sharing love with each other. And that is, uh, creates a neurochemistry and a biochemistry uh, that is separate and independent from the biochemistry associated with your food. And I think it's really important. I tell the story purposefully in Cured about uh, places in the world where people didn't change their diets and still people get better. And so there's uh, Rosetta, Pennsylvania, for example, is a very well documented uh, place where people have a lot of lard and meat and smoke cigars and drink alcohol and all these things. And you would expect them to have a lot of heart disease and they don't because the, they live in true community and they share a lot of love and they spend time with each other sitting on their porches and are very close knit. And so, um, so it's just important to understand that they are, there are higher factors than just the physical nutrition that are critical for our health, well-being, and our healing. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm watching the chat. You probably can't see the live chat, but people are saying, but this doctor doesn't believe this or my doctor doesn't believe this. And what I'm saying to the people, what I'm typing is if your doctor or somebody important to you doesn't believe something instead of trying to convince them, because you really can't convince somebody anyway, find yeah. one that does believe what you are seeking. Wouldn't yeah. that be easier than trying to convince a doctor that doesn't believe the trauma yeah. exists or is important? Find yeah. what it does because you're, you know, yeah. there's still saying a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So I think it's a waste of time trying to convince people of something that they don't believe. You can't, you can't do it, whether it's diet or religion or faith. Find, yeah. But there are people that do believe it. So why not? Wouldn't it be a lot easier to go to them than yeah. to try to convince you? You know, that's yeah. what I say to people when, well, my doctor doesn't believe the vegan diet. Well, guess what? There's hundreds and thousands of doctors that you could be seeing that do. Yes. The, the people that I study are not the compliant ones who do the doctor's bidding or follow the doctor's orders. They're the ones who, you could say they're troublemakers. They take responsibility for their own health. They view the doctor as a coach, but not necessarily as the expert over their life and their body who sees them for 15 minutes and thinks they're the expert. So you know things, every person who goes to see a doctor knows things about their life and their body that are critical pieces of knowledge about what recovery and healing will require. And you have to put that into the mix. I do believe that doctors do have scientific knowledge and clinical training or experience that's important, but that has to be put into the context of the person's own knowledge of their own life and history and their own understanding of what this illness is fundamentally about underneath everything. And again, doctors can be coaches, but they can't be the expert over your life and body if they only see you for 15 minutes a month or. Exactly. And sometimes I find that they almost get upset if what they prescribe, if, if you did something other than what they prescribed and it works. Yes. And they actually yeah. get angry. Like you, you had mentioned before we logged on about my story and my story isn't anywhere near as a spectacular as Emily's healing from stage four metastatic lung cancer. But 20 years ago, when I was diagnosed with precancerous polyps, I, uh, instead of having, I, they couldn't remove them during the, the outpatient procedure. I was going to have to have regular surgery and I refused it because I've had two allergic reactions severe where I stopped needing wow. general anesthesia. So that's when I changed my diet after 26 years of a junk food vegan diet to really you know, really clean, unprocessed whole foods. And I did use, I mean, I didn't have like a, a plan of faith-based healing, but I did use, you know, meditation and, you know, prayer to how I know it. And when I went back to the same doctor and he, he accused me of having surgery somewhere else, because when I told him, I said, well, I changed my diet. He goes, well, that's impossible. Like, it's like, they don't even believe it when they have the evidence. Some yes, of them, so I right. learned that there are faith-based doctors like yourself, yeah. they're doctors, you know, you can also believe in God, you know, some doctors are atheists. But there are doctors who are faith-based, and that's one of the reasons I moved up here. Because at the Weimar Institute, these, all these these are medical doctors that are Seventh Day Adventists, and prayer is part of like the doctors that I go to now. You get pray, you, they pray with. Well, I mean, they do not. First of all, they do not force prayer on anyone that doesn't want it. But at the end of the appointment, they'll say, "May I pray with you now?" And I'm like, "Of course, that's why." Yeah. I'm here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think if people have a doctor who doesn't see the larger picture and is restricted by the narrowness of their medical training, then it's good to go out and find somebody who does accept and validate your beliefs. And if you can't do that, then at least make sure you supplement your treatment with people who do get it and can help you find the path that's right for you. 
Yep. So Liz, who's watching live, says, I've been a registered nurse for 50 years. I've seen many examples of spontaneous remission. I always felt it was faith-based. I had no idea anyone actually studied this. So thank you. Yeah. You know, do you think one of the reasons they can't study it in medicine is because, okay, let's just say two people were diagnosed with lung cancer. You, How can you randomly assign them? Like you can just yeah. say, okay, well, you, you're not going to get any treatment and you, you're going to do these. I mean, because people should be able to do what they want, which it sometimes includes doing nothing. Right. That's right. Yeah. I, I, it's such a big topic. Um, you know, I teach, you know, one week workshops just on small parts of this. So I wish we could cover more in such a brief time. Uh, but yes, um, the person in your chat is raising a really important issue. But people can do both. You know, it's not like you can't, yeah. you can still have conventional treatment if you want it and still do some of these things that you're talking about, like improving your nutrition, having trauma therapy, if you like, yes. you know, it's not an either or, by the way, you yeah. don't have to like, just, okay, I'm, you know, that that's what I put. Right. I think what happens is people get so scared when they have a serious diagnosis that mm -hmm. some of them just will jump into treatments quickly without researching it. And maybe treatments that if, look, if you want it, have it, but sometimes they don't really want it, but, but doctors can be very persuasive using yep. these three words, standard of care, you know, yep, even true. if it doesn't show that it, it works well, that's the standard of care, you know? Yeah. 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 Again, my view is that science is important and of real value, but we have to remember that in both uh, the industries of pharmaceuticals and food, um, that there's the, the, the tripartite relationship between industry um, that funds the research that academics do, the relationship between industry that pays for the research to be done, and the academics who either do the research or are paid to sign off on certain results, the relationship between industry that funds the research, the academics who do the research, and then the lobbyists and the government recommendations, that, that triad is science, but it's also spin science. It's got a business side to it and a business interest that does influence the results. So again, I believe in science, but I think one has to take a look carefully at the recommended treatments and decide what's right for you and realize that um, science is important, but there's also a spin to it, so. You talked about, and again, I gotta, I, sorry, because I have all my notes from your book on the phone, so I can't remember the gentleman's name, but it is a medical doctor that, that actually prays for his patients. Mm -hmm. He's been on television and he actually oh, yeah. has a practice. Dr. Uh, Dr. Dr. Namey, yeah, Dr. Assam. I mean, he sounds amazing. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of doctor I wanna go to. Yeah, he's, he's, he's trained as an anesthesiologist. He's in Cleveland. Um, and then he had a lot of patients who had documented healings because of his work with them. And I've studied a number of his patients over the years and gathered medical evidence to see if that's true and have been able to substantiate that, yes, uh, a number of people who see him do have healing uh, that uh, doesn't make sense from our traditional medical paradigm. He does have a website and uh, he and his wife, Kathy, have quite a ministry that's uh, helping a lot of people. He sounds amazing. Can, 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 can you just go to Cleveland and be his patient? I mean, that, that sounds like I would go there if that's what, if I had a serious illness. Yeah. 
yeah, uh, one can uh, sign up for an appointment on his website uh, and one can either go see him in person or see him virtually from wherever a person is in the world. And um, He sounds like he'd be a fabulous guest for this show. I'm wondering, like, how much of healing is, you know, you know how like in medicine, there's a placebo effect sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that if a person expects to be what, whatever, the, whatever the procedure is, whether it's chemotherapy or prayer, yeah. how important is your expectations as to whether or not you are going to undergo a healing? You think? I think it's very important. I think we become what we focus on in a lot of ways. I think it's important to understand that we do become what we focus on. It's also equally important to not deny the traumas we've experienced, to uh, do the work uh, to heal if we have a history of suppressing our feelings. Uh, Because again, it's also true that if we hold repressed or suppressed feelings in our bodies, that does take a toll on our health. Um, And so doing the work to deal with suppressed feelings, to do the work to heal traumas is really important. And it's also true and important that we become what we focus on. So I'm all for um, a spirituality that helps us experience our value as human beings and our connection to others as human beings. But it's also important to not ignore the shadow side of our history To uh, It's also important to look at what's hard for us to look at that we have been in denial about um, or to look where our pain comes from. You know, one of the, uh, Emily, like I said, isn't going to be on for a couple of months, but when talking to her about her situation, because she was even before the lung cancer, she was just going to be on to talk about her, 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 her book about her weight loss journey. She mentioned, you know, that she had a lot of people praying for her and I'm reading some books by Larry. I think it's Larry Dossie now about how prayer is powerful medicine and how people that are prayed for often do better than people that aren't even from people that they don't even know. Yeah, prayer is something that is very uh, difficult for us to study accurately. Um, I think that's in part because scientists don't understand prayer, and that's a big topic I write about in Cure, um, why some studies support the efficacy of prayer and some don't. And so uh, I think uh, when one looks at the methodology, you see how much the researcher did or did not understand the ways in which prayer works. So can the mind really heal the body? And if so, how does it do that? Well, there are mysteries here that I think we need a lot more research uh, to understand. I think the mind is far more powerful than we typically understand. When I do research in other countries that believe in the power of the mind a lot more than we do in the United States, it's shocking what one sees and what people experience. And I can tell you multiple shocking stories of what I've witnessed with my own eyes around that. We in the United States, the gift of the United States and the Western world is that we have helped identify the physical laws of the universe. So with the help of Isaac Newton and the Enlightenment, we helped uh, elucidate these physical laws. And that's all really important, but that's the physical world. The spiritual or mental world is also very powerful. And as a very material culture, uh, we have a harder time believing in the power of the invisible world and the power of the mind and of love and community. And those are 
uh, I believe, even more powerful than many of the uh, physical uh, treatments and physical understandings that we have. Yeah. And this isn't the kind of stuff they really teach in medical school, is it? No, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. But you also went to divinity school, right? And that's the kind of, you probably learned things like that there. They To some degree, but I went to seminary at Princeton and that's a, uh, that's still a Western um, understanding. And so it's still uh, very material in its understanding and does not understand or uh, credit the power of the mind or spirituality as much as say some places in South America or Africa where the power of the invisible world and of the mind uh, is uh, understood as being much more powerful than even our seminaries in the West tend to consider. Can any of this work be applied to our pets? Because I think, you know, sometimes we love our pets so much and sometimes they get these diseases like cancer, but they're, you know, I, I just wish like we could apply it to them because they, can they have spontaneous remissions too? Yeah, I mean, I've not studied this myself, but I certainly have heard of it. Um, it's the connection between a pet owner and a pet is undeniable. And more and more, we are seeing uh, animals come down with the same diseases that their owners have or the, with a similar pattern. Now we have uh, animals getting diabetes and heart disease and neuropathy and things that uh, used to be understood as being human diseases mostly and cancer. And so, um, you know, I think it's, we have not proceeded with science far enough to understand the ways in which illness and health are kinds of energy, uh, but there are certain energetic patterns it appears that are uh, present and that both animals and humans participate in that someday perhaps we'll have instruments that are subtle enough to pick up on these kinds of things. I think animals are just tremendous healers in general for us. They are. Yes, they are. They don't judge, right? And I think, again, the soul longs for an experience without judgment of where we can experience yeah. unconditional positive regard and animals are such healing forces in that way. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, I love this idea of bridging science and faith together. You know, because when you think about science, they, they have to be able to see it, right? They have to be able to look at it under a microscope, whereas, right. you know, faith is kind of evidence of things you can't see. Yes, that's right. Well, and the way in which the split between faith and science occurred is very telling in that regard, because, because you're right. Traditional science, as it is understood right now, is only about the evidence of the five senses, things you can see and touch. Um when Descartes was struggling with all these issues and the church refused to admit, uh, I mean, they wouldn't allow initially for doctors to do autopsies because the body and soul were thought to be united. And if you cut on the body, uh, the dead body, then you are cutting the soul. And they thought that had eternal consequences. So, so Descartes said, well, okay, let's give the church the mind and the spirit and just let the doctors have the body so they can do autopsies and start to learn about the body. So that's how that split between mind and body uh, began to occur. And it's been such a deep split now for uh, centuries that even 30 years ago, a doctor would scoff at a, um, someone who said that high blood pressure comes from stress because it was 
high blood pressure was thought to be only a function of the kidney. And so there's no um, people, doctors were socialized out of the common sense notion that stress can play a role in your high blood pressure. So we've been slowly overcoming that split in recent decades, but the split between mind and body was set up in trying to deal with this a long time ago. You know, it's interesting because if, if you go to a, like a clergy person and, you know, maybe uh, say, you know, I'm going to go have this pill or procedure, they don't belittle you. But often if you try to speak to your doctor that you are going to do something like this, they, they make you feel, feel really bad and also really stupid, you know, that you yeah. believe in that, which I, I just wish that some, not all doctors do that, but many of them, they, I'll just say it this way, they poo poo any of this as being real yet. I remember, you ever heard of Greg Braden? I have heard him. I've heard of his name. Yes. Right. So he wrote very, his books are, I think, challenging to read and listen to, but a quantum something or other, maybe it was quantum mm. healing. Maybe that was Deepak Chopra, but I remember taking a seminar with him a long time ago and he showed this video and you can find the video on YouTube about this medicineless hospital in Beijing where mm. basically, and they, they were doing it. They, it was either CAT scan or ultrasound. They showed this patient and he had this big tumor and all these doctors just prayed and the tumor went away and people could say, Oh, that's a trick or photoshopped, but I don't know. It was pretty impressive if it was real, you know? Yeah. I looked into visiting that hospital, actually. Um, I am very interested in some of the um, approaches to health and healing that occur in the Far East, um, including in China. That hospital does not exist any longer, but the medical records supposedly still do exist. And the doctor uh, who had started that hospital still is alive, I'm told. So I ended up not going there, um, but I would be interested in looking at some of those medical records and really tracing out what the medical evidence shows. You know, you mentioned John of God in your book, and then he turned out to not be so great afterwards. But but I remember in his heyday, I remember even, I believe, Dr. Wayne Dyer went for treatment for him. And so I'm curious if, because some people apparently were healed or felt they were healed by him. So that's why I'm wondering how much you have to buy into whether or not you're going to be healed for the healing to work, you know, whether it's conventional medicine or prayer, you understand what I'm saying? So if yeah. I believe, if I go into chemotherapy or whatever, mm -hmm. believing it's not going to work, does that play a role on whether it works, whether it's faith healing or traditional medical healing is how the patient's perception of the treatment going to affect treatment. Yeah, again, I think that we need a lot more research in these areas, but the expectations, the beliefs of a person are really important. Now, that being said, this is a very complex topic because a person can have conscious beliefs, but their unconscious beliefs can be very different than their conscious beliefs. So for example, uh, I saw this personally growing up in, an, uh, in a very conservative religious environment. My father says he came from the Amish past, and we grew up in a very conservative, rural, fundamentalist family. My parents talk a lot about their belief in God, but if you stand back and look at what they actually believe in, you would say, oh, I think they believe in carpet or money. <laughs> so, so I think as human beings, um, we are not very good at knowing what our uh, deeper beliefs are. Uh, we might think our beliefs are one thing, but our unconscious beliefs can be quite different than our conscious, conscious beliefs. So Paul Tillich is a theologian who said that everyone has one ultimate concern, and that one ultimate concern shapes our entire lives consciously and unconsciously. 
And Woody Allen said that his parents believed in God and carpet. And I would have to say that that something true would be true said about my parents. My parents might not recognize how much they care about material things, but somebody, an observer who stands back and looks at the big picture would see that pretty clearly. I don't know if you know the answer to this, Dr. Rediger from Cindy. Other than word of mouth, is there a way to find a faith-based MD? Well, there's different kinds of faith-based MDs. Uh, there are um, really excellent uh, Jewish physicians. Um, there are excellent Christian physicians. There are excellent Buddhist physicians. Um, there's not one organizing body where one can find all of them listed on our website. There's excellent um, um, Islamic physicians. So depending what one's uh, faith commitment is, um, I think the best thing one can do is to network in that way. If a person is, if a physician is public about their spiritual commitments, sometimes that's reflected in a website and one could type in there into Google their, their spiritual tradition with physician and see if they can find Buddhist physicians or Christian physicians or Jewish physicians, for example, um, who see their faith as integral to their uh, practice as a physician. Well, like I say, in general, I mean, I can't speak for all Seventh-day Adventists, but most of them are vegan. And every single Seventh-day Adventist doctor I've seen is faith-based. Um, but this, you know, might be making a generalization. I can only tell you what I've experienced in that realm. I don't know if you can advise, uh, Diana. She says her friend has been diagnosed with, where did it go? I saw it with, um, stage four colon cancer a month ago, and she refuses chemo or radiation. What would you advise? Well, certainly, um, Chemotherapy and radiation, um, that depends on the particular illness and even the type of cancer that one has in terms of the efficacy. Some chemotherapies are more effective than others. Um, It's also true though, that getting better is most often not just about the traditional medical treatments, but about all the other things. Uh, certainly there are good books about this that are much better over the decades in terms of being valid and true. Uh, you were talking about Dr. Kelly Turner. She does excellent work in this regard. Uh, Dean Ornish writes beautifully and uh, about the science of these issues. Cured, my book looks at these uh, issues. Uh, Gabor Mate's book, uh, When the Body Says No, or His Myth of Normal, looks at these issues. Um, yeah, so, um, it's the people I study, uh, often pursue traditional Western treatments and, but sometimes don't, uh, what's important is they do a lot of other things. They address nutrition, they address their deeper conscious and unconscious beliefs about their value and their connection with others. They heal their traumas. Um, they do these other things as well. And these, these other things are really important. The, the beauty of Western medicine is that we are very good at dividing uh, things into parts and examining the parts. So it's, for example, if a person has a medical problem, they go see the physician or nurse practitioner. If they have a 
a psychological problem, they see the psychotherapist. If they have a spiritual problem, they go see the priest, rabbi, imam, or minister. But what is so critical for healing is to stand back and look at the forest for the trees and realize this is a person with all of these different aspects of their being. And the people who get better are the ones who bring their lived life into connection with not only the medical part of their lives, but also the psychological and spiritual dimensions and puts them together in a unique prescription that's right for them and engages all of their parts. And that's that's the part that's often missed. So standing back, seeing the forest for the trees and saying, there's more to this than just taking a medication. What is this illness really about for me? And what do I need to change or address? Isn't that kind of what like integrative medicine is trying to do? Yeah, it is. Because I remember my grandfather graduated medical school in, I believe it was 1920, and he was called a GP, a general practitioner, you know, and now, and and there were specialties back then, because I have his photos from medical school, like certain specialties, like, um, for example, cardiology didn't even exist back then, right? Right. And, but now it's, it's medicine is so specialized that, you know, People aren't, first of all, the 10 minute appointments, they don't have time if you come in with a, a bad hip to ask you about your trauma. You know, they're basically, you know, writing a script, ordering a test, that kind of thing. But most doctors aren't looking at you as the whole person, you know, right. they're looking at you at the body part. I remember I used to be a respiratory therapist. This was, gosh, 1940, over 40 years ago. And a lot of times doctors didn't even call patients by names. They'd say the gallbladder in room four, you know, right. I mean, you're not a gall, you have a gallbladder, or maybe you don't, but they never even would say, you know, Mrs. Jones, they would call, you know, they would call the patient by the disease. Yes, that's, yeah. Isn't that weird? It, yeah, it's, it's, it just shows the brilliance of medical training is that we can specialize in all these little body parts, but the brokenness of medical training is that we lose common sense and forget that's a living person who's a lot more than just a body part or and a lot more than just a disease process. And the healing possibilities lie in the larger dimensions of being human and the deeper parts of our psyches and our minds. Well, I really appreciate your work. Are you going to be doing a follow-up book or? Yes, I've actually started putting together the book proposal in the last week. And so um, as you and I were talking a little bit ago, I'm going to be sharing my time between California and Boston two weeks uh, in each place every month and looking to help create a more trauma-informed medicine, a more trauma-informed psychiatry, and a more trauma-informed spirituality. Are you able to share the title of the book or the topic of the book? Well, I'm working on two possibilities right now. One is a memoir that goes into the dimensions of my own life around these issues and my own kind of healing. And that book I probably will call Shunned. Um, And how in the subtitle, I think might be uh, losing my religion and finding my morality. <laughs> so, oh, I love it. I love that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And then the other book that we're looking at is with my girlfriend. Uh, she's also a writer and physician, uh, Dr. Lissa Rankin, um, R-A-N-K-I-N. And we are looking to do a book where we write about stories and science associated with a more trauma-informed medicine and psychology and spirituality. 
I heard her speak once in Pasadena at a Hay House conference. I oh, you did. All right. Good. Fabulous. Absolutely. Wow. I, I really love the work you're doing. And I hope people know that it's not an either or. You can still get your chemo and pray. I mean, you don't have to choose yeah. one or the other. You know, it's, right. it's, it's sometimes, you know, I think about, I had a guest on the show. His name is the Minister of Wellness. He's an African-American gentleman who just is so upset about what people eat in church, like at church potlucks. You know, they have a very high rate of diabetes and obesity. Yes. And he's trying to have them change their diet. Uh, they're very faith-based, but yes. they don't look at nutrition at all. You know what I'm no, saying? You're, so, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, here's an interesting question from Julie. Do you have any thoughts about the success of EMDR? EMDR is a trauma treatment uh, that is very effective for some people. I think it's a, a bit uh, practitioner dependent, it sounds like. Like how well does the uh, therapist understand and apply the EMDR. Uh, certainly there's a lot of people who have uh, trauma histories who have found that helpful because trauma therapy and recovery takes a lot more than just talk therapy. And people need approaches that are more than just talking about uh, what it takes to recover from trauma because we use talk as a way of avoiding and avoiding seeing even what we need to find or heal. Yeah. And again, Beverly's saying, well, how do we find a trauma specialist? There's no like one website where they're all listed, just like there's yeah. no website where all faith doctors are faith. That's doctors. right. That, and that needs to change. That's one of the things that Lisa and I are really concerned about. Um, it's so hard for a person to find a good trauma therapist without a lot of personal investigation. I tell people, find three to five trauma therapists who are actually trauma-informed and trauma-trained formally, not just saying they were or thinking they were, and then interview them. Interview them to find out about the kind of trauma training they had um, to determine if, it's a, if this person is a good fit for you, whether you think this is someone you can relax with and really trust. Um, it's just important to be interviewing people and not just finding a therapist, but finding the right therapist for you at the right time. Yeah. You know, sometimes I believe that all treatment is faith-based because the people that go the conventional route, they often have faith in that, you know, right. and, and it does mm -hmm. work, you know, so oh, yeah. it's such an interesting topic because people, like you say, it's not something that's easily studied because we can't assign people with cancer. We say, okay, we're not going to do anything, you know, for you. I mean, they, they would have to volunteer to do nothing, but I got to tell you, the more I listen to this topic, the more and more evidence I'm seeing of people who did nothing and thrived versus yes. many people who did conventional treatment and not only maybe died, but also were permanently disfigured or, you know, it's, it, it's not a picnic traditional uh, cancer treatment for most people. It's, it's a difficult thing to have chemo radiation surgery, even if they do recover, it's not an easy road for most of them. That's true. And I think we, what you're saying is so important. Each person needs to investigate for themselves and not just take the opinion of others or the opinion of a doctor or family members, um, but needs to investigate for themselves and pay real attention to the path that is right for them. And that's, you have to be in the driver's seat. You can't just be sitting in the back seat and letting others drive your treatment. You have to be very involved yourself, doing the research yourself, really making the decisions that are right for you in your life at this point in time. 
Right. And don't make them out of fear because that's what happens is you get this diagnosis. And, 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 and here's right. the thing. I mean, I'm sure there are cancers that are growing very quickly, but most of the time when a person is diagnosed with cancer, it's been there for a while. So, I mean, they, they can, they can have more than a week to make this decision for the most part. And they're often forced into treatments they may not want be, out of fear. And you never make a good decision about anything when you're making it from a place of fear. Yep. Completely true. Yeah. Somebody's mentioning Bruce Lipton. I'd love to have all these people on. They're probably out of my league, but I, I love his book, The Biology of Belief. I love that book. I just yeah. listened to it again. I, yeah. I, this is like my favorite topic, you know, but, you know, again, I have so many, you know, just traditional medical doctors. I'm like, this is the way, and this is what you got to do. Hey, and if it works for you, do it. We're not telling you what to do, but um, I, I just, this is a really interesting conversation. And I thank you so much for your work. And I welcome you to the West Coast. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. And your book is wonderful. Cured. Guys, get the book. It really is a good book. And I, I listened to it on Audible and it was very easy to listen to. And I loved the stories. And um, thank you so much, Dr. Rediger. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's just been my pleasure. And I hope you'll come back sometime. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 10 a.m. tomorrow when I have a plant-based registered dietitian named Jennifer Moore on. And she's going to be talking about plant-based kidney protection made easy. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.